Hello, I'm Aaron Lohr. And I'm Caitlin Andrzejczyk. And this is the Endocrine News Podcast. Today we're talking about the sometimes conflicting perspectives on the treatment of menopausal symptoms. In just a minute, we'll dig into this topic with Dr. Cynthia Stunkel, Clinical Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Diego School of Medicine. But first, let's hear from Caitlin with a resource update and our trivia question. If you are interested in learning about new research focused on women's health, check out our 2019 thematic issue on women's health research and read a variety of papers from our four journals for free. You can find links to the collection at www.endocrine.org podcast. And now for my trivia question. In today's interview with Dr. Stunkel, we are going to learn a lot about menopause, its symptoms, and treatments. My trivia question for today is, what is the transition period between normal female fertility and the onset of menopause? I'll have my answer at the end of the interview. And now, our interview with Dr. Cynthia Stunkel. Thank you for joining me today, Dr. Stunkel. Thank you, Erin. Nice to be here. Can you walk us through the range of menopausal symptoms? I think this is one of the arenas, Erin, where we have really come to appreciate really the vast diversity of women. And there are a few lucky ones who go, oh, did I just go through menopause? Mm. And notice that they stop having their menstrual cycles. And that's the easy group. That's in the minority. But for probably 75 to 80% of women, they will have some sort of symptoms. But even within those groups, some women have really such severe symptoms that gets in the way of their ability to function, do their work, get along with their family, have peace at home. And others are modestly bothered. So different women have very different symptoms. And in addition, the same woman can have different symptoms over time. So are we talking mainly um, hot flashes, mood swings, those kind of things? Yeah, exactly. Well, the key parameter for observing whether a woman is going through the menopause transition or not has been defined by the stages of reproductive aging workshop formally as a change in her menstrual cycles. And so if women have menstrual cycles that are getting shorter by about seven days or so a month, we know that they're probably in the early transition. And then when women start skipping two cycles in a row, so 60 days of amenorrhea, they are late in the menopause transition. And that's when some of the symptoms, like hot flashes, which we also call vasomotor symptoms, really dial up. That and then during the first year post-menopause, which is a whole year after that last menstrual period. Some women find that they have mood shifts, uh, both depression and anxiety. We're learning uh, more and more that some of these symptoms can appear even before women notice any changes in their menstrual cycles. Hmm. So I've seen patients who come in and go, something's different. (laughs) I can't put my finger on it, but something's changing. And very often, uh, midlife women will come in with uh, depressive symptoms and anxiety. And I think that clinician has to really be thinking, could this be early uh, presentation of menopause? And then uh, just a couple others, Erin, women complain of sleep disruption. So we used to say, well, of course, if she's waking up all night with hot flashes, this is going to cause sleep disruption. But as this has been more carefully studied and more objective measures of hot flashes 
uh, have been uh, monitored, we find that midlife women are more prone to uh, insomnia, early awakening, sleep apnea, and even restless leg syndrome. So if women are really focusing on the sleep, I think it's reasonable to think about addressing their hot flashes. But remember that they might have a primary sleep disorder that's being manifest in midlife. So that's something else we've learned. I want to just give you one more um, symptom that we don't talk about enough, Erin, and that is kind of a combination of a decreased interest in sex, which a lot mm -hmm. of women might notice in midlife, and this seems to be one of the most common sexual complaints, is also called hypoactive sexual desire disorder, and this may or may not go hand-in-hand with uh, vaginal discomfort, which has more recently been coined the genitourinary syndrome of menopause, because this can also affect recurrent urinary tract infections, dysuria, uh, frequent urination. And again, as doctors that are talking with women, it's really, I think the onus is on us to ask our patients, because some women are very reluctant to bring up these last two symptoms. And you might imagine that these can be very disruptive, not just for the woman, but um, for the family, for the couple. Uh, so it's important to consider that too. So it seems fair to say that, you know, these menopausal symptoms could certainly have an impact on quality of life. And at some point, they're going to want to see, is there any kind of treatment options available for me to help give me some relief from this? And so in those cases, what sort of treatments are available? Um, there's not one sort of treatment that's going to be effective for all women because their symptoms can vary. So, for example, for women who uh, have problems with bleeding disorders, and usually this is going to be heavy, frequent, anovulatory bleeding, uh, for these women, uh, the first thing we have to do is really evaluate them before we do any treatment to make sure we aren't missing endometrial hyperplasia or an endometrial cancer. And if uh, endocrinologists aren't comfortable doing that, I think for folks who take care of a lot of women going through this transition, it's really good to partner them with an OBGYN. You can work as a team on some of these technical things if you're not comfortable doing endometrial biopsies, for example. Um, from a treatment standpoint, if the woman doesn't have contraindications, if she's not a smoker, you know, morbidly obese, uh, some debate about uh, duration of diabetes, but oral contraceptives can really mm. help because they can suppress the hypothalamic pituitary axis and kind of shut off some of the raging hormones that literally are occurring in women's bodies during this transition. And they can not only reduce the bleeding and regulate the bleeding, but then also there's plenty of estrogen uh, in an oral contraceptive, probably four to eight times more than postmenopausal hormone therapies. And this can also help women with things like hot flashes, sometimes the sleep disorders, even some of the mood can be improved uh, by oral contraceptives. And um, groups like ACOG and the World Health advise that it's okay to leave women on this until 50, some say until 55, hmm. by which time 95% of women have gone through menopause. So um, it can be just a nice, smooth transition. The other interesting thing that's come up in the realm of bleeding um, has been the use of a levonorgestrel IUD. This is a synthetic progestin-releasing IUD that uh, leads over time to thinning of that uterine lining, the endometrium, 
and it really can be effective at reducing some of the heavy erratic bleeding that women have during this transition. And because these IUDs can be in place at least seven years, um, some suggest perhaps even longer, it's kind of a nice combination to use uh, once that patient starts having hot flashes, you can add on a little bit of estrogen, and the IUD is already there taking care mm. of the uterus. So that can be really uh, helpful, and women can say, you know, thank you for <laughs> getting me back on track. For hot flashes, it's a whole other story. And um, hot flashes have really evolved, in, as we understand the science of the menopause transition, as a point of interest. I think we used to think, again, this is a nuisance symptom. It can embarrass women if they have a lot of flushing and sweating. It disrupts sleep. But there's been a lot of really interesting work looking at the potential link with vasomotor symptoms as possibly a marker of endothelial instability and potentially linked, at least in some women, who have a very early onset of hot flashes in their transition, like maybe 10 years uh, before they go through menopause, of being associated with subclinical cardiovascular risk, looking mm. at things like increased intimal medial thickness, uh, coronary calcium, aortic calcium. And so a lot of this work is coming out of a longitudinal study called the Study of Women Across the Nation, uh, the SWAN study. And I think this is one area to kind of really keep our eyes on as we learn about how this symptom that we've just kind of thought is a vanilla symptom of menopause might have other health implications for women. Are there any potential risks in the use of the IUDs? You know, this isn't your mother or your grandmother's IUD because in the past we worried about infections uh, that could lead to infertility. And so the new IUDs are very popular with even girls as young as in their teens, certainly women in their 20s and 30s, and we are no longer concerned about issues related to infertility. Now, for a woman going through the menopause transition, she's uh, probably not worried about infertility. She wants to make sure that she's getting adequate conception. And so from that standpoint, that would also be an advantage of the levonorgestrel IUD, that it's providing uh, not just a reduction in bleeding, but also contraception. Uh, some women might have heavier periods briefly and might have some cramping, uh, but for the most part, this evolves. And so I don't really know of large concerns about the use of the IUDs for midlife women in the menopause transition. So that is some fascinating information about the vasomotor symptoms. How do we treat those? I like to say we should evaluate three different things. Number one, how bothered is the woman? Because some women are really just tough and they say, you know what? I'm pretty sure these are going to pass. I'm doing okay. I don't really need a therapy for them. And other women will come in and say, I can't function. Uh, things are rough at home. I'm crying at work. I'm yelling at people in my office. This I really need some help with this. And so after we ascertain the degree of bother, then I think we need to ask her what she has in mind. And women, I like to say of us as um, herd creatures, um, I'll hear about what their book club people are recommending, what they're learning about in their carpool. Hopefully not just what they see on uh, television 
or read from movie stars that have become uh, menopause mm-hmm. mavens. But, you know, what does she have in mind? Because I think we need to work. Uh, this is kind of a shared decision because there are some uncertainties still. So what does she have in mind? Does she want to go natural? Does she want to think about hormones? Does she say things like, um, I saw my mother die of breast cancer. I could never, ever take a chance. And so we need to know what kind of things she's thinking before we can decide. And then the third point is, um, is this going to be safe for her to consider offering her hormone therapy? And we have put together a whole algorithm that we can go through down the line. We included in our Endocrine Society clinical practice guidelines a few years ago to recommend how to go about that. So menopausal hormone therapy is the most effective therapy we have, but it's certainly not the only one, Erin. Mm-hmm. And um, a number of good randomized controlled trials were done in women, for example, uh, with breast cancer. And this is where some of the ability of some of the antidepressants, the SSRIs, the SNRIs were uh, discovered. Only one of these, paroxetine, is currently FDA-approved. But particularly if your patient has vasomotor symptoms, is finding that she's got some depressed mood, that's an ideal candidate to think about one of these antidepressants, for example. Uh, Gabapentin, a drug used for neuropathic pain, is also very effective at reducing hot flashes. And um, in addition to that, if given at bedtime, it can increase somnolence. So for women who are having trouble getting to sleep, a little gabapentin can help with the hot flashes uh, and with the sleep. And then, uh, not FDA approved yet, but there is just some incredible excitement about a new agent for hot flashes that works via uh, our increased understanding of a central mechanism uh, with what we call the candy neurons, hmm. kispeptin, uh, neurokinin, and dynorphin. And the specific agents that have been looked at, um, interestingly enough, were on the shelf and had been uh, investigated for schizophrenia Hmm. treatment and didn't work. But somebody remembered that they worked via a neurokinin-3 receptor antagonist mechanism. And these drugs in short-term trials to date are just powerful. They can almost wipe hot flashes out within a period of days. Wow. And so everybody's kind of got their eye on some of the long-term uh, data about these. Um, I was asked with a colleague to write an editorial about these, and the data looked really compelling, but that particular agent was taken off the shelf of being in the studies because it was associated with an increase in liver enzymes. So uh, my question was, is this going to be a new panacea, this class of agents, or is this just a flash in the pan? Hmm. And so, but the neurokinin-3 receptor antagonists, yeah, I think folks need to keep an eye for that because that would be a new agent that would be really effective, more so than some of the other prescription therapies that we have right now, but would not be altering the hormonal milieu so much so that the kind of things that we worry about with too much estrogen or too much of the wrong kind of estrogen anyhow. So that's really interesting. There are alternatives, and some women say, what can I do that doesn't involve any medications? And I was surprised when uh, a careful analysis, this was done a few years ago, and the number one alternative effectiveness in clinical trials was cognitive behavioral therapy. 
So I do live in Southern California (laughs) where people like these things, but I think we're finding that working with a practitioner who's trained and being able to deliver this, so I think folks need to find out who in their area can help with that. But cognitive behavioral therapy can be very effective. I think this goes back to all the things we don't know and why there's such an incredible placebo effect Hmm. with uh, improving vasomotor symptoms. But these have been looked at in in placebo-controlled trials. And the second one that sounds kind of like a California approach is hypnosis. Hypnosis. And so these two things are another, uh, you know, proven really to have some benefit for women who don't want to use hormone therapy or other prescription antidepressants or gabapentin. Um, people ask about all kinds of things. I like to say it's aisle number four in <laughs> Costco with herbs, supplements, um, additives. These have been looked at in some trials, and the data is very inconsistent. So yeah. I, I usually uh, don't recommend them. I like to try if people are really insistent to you know, work with them to understanding that this is really not a well defined or studied um, approach. Also in that category of things like acupuncture, if they're using clean needles and going to a reliable place and feel that it helps them, I'm okay with that if it seems to be working. And in an NIH-funded study called MS Flash, um, they looked at yoga. And the yoga didn't really help women, but in the paper they wrote and said, but they just didn't care as much anymore. So, you know, different kind of yeah. things for different folks. And, and women are coming from all sort of places with what they would like to do. So um, the final thing are just some simple lifestyle things that some women find adequate. Um, we talk about the thermostat wars, <laughs> setting the thermostat down to, um, you know, in the 60s, whether you're in the boardroom or in the bedroom, just a cooler environment can help some women. Some women notice triggers like coffee or alcohol, and this can be debated. But, you know, if if you ask and if women say that there is something that sets me off, then, you know, okay, st- yeah, stay away stop from doing that. <laughs> and then the other thing that goes along with all the other sort of emphasis on lifestyle and healthy living is that there have been clinical trials of women with weight loss. And I guess that sort hmm. of makes sense even from a physical standpoint that if there's this added insulation in your body, you might have trouble cooling when these vasomotor symptoms happen. And the women can get some benefit from weight loss. So maybe that would be a, a good impetus to discuss with a patient who's kind of needs a little bit more motivation that it might actually help with her hot flashes. But those are really the approaches that, you know, I think give us a very powerful uh, spectrum in our toolkit to be able to address these issues with women and try to get a match. And then the other thing I think people need to know is we might not get it right the first time. And so clinicians and women need to be open to the idea that we're in this partnership, we're going to get it figured out, but it might take some trial and error to see what's best for them. Yeah, it's nice to know that there's not just one option, that there seems to be a couple pathways here that are open. Sometimes the internet can be one of our bigger educators for better and oftentimes for worse. Is there anything that patients are doing to find relief for their menopausal symptoms that might not be the best idea, may possibly even be sort of risky just because of some trends or fads that they're seeing online? 
There are so many answers to that question, Aaron. <laughs> but um, I'm going to just back up and just say, number one, the Endocrine Society has our menopause map, and we have some really good data. ACOG, the American College of OBGYN, has some excellent patient data. The North American Menopause Society, www.menopause.org, has some excellent vetted evidence-based uh, information for patients. Probably one of the more disturbing areas that the Internet popular talk show hosts, uh, movie stars who write books, advertise, and push for is a whole concept of compounded bioidentical hormones. Mm -hmm. This has really taken off as an entire kind of movement and industry uh, unto itself. And so when I said how women might come in and say what they want to take, women might say, I want to use compounding. Can you do that for me? Uh, because uh, I know people that do it, and I like it that it's going to be customized and tailored just to me, and that's kind of what I want. It's a, it's a very uh, complex story. We uh, did a, a survey through the North American Menopause Society, and found that older women primarily probably had gotten started on traditional FDA-approved therapies and continued on those therapies. But when we looked down the ages, uh, about 40% of women in their 40s were using compounded mm. bioidentical hormones. So this is real. And I think probably any one of the folks listening to this who take care of a lot of um, women with symptoms during the menopause have encountered this question in their patients, uh, what about compounded hormones? The Endocrine Society has taken a very strong stance for at least a decade now, recommending against the use of compounded bioidentical hormones. I'm not sure that all clinicians and certainly not all patients realize that, number one, these are not FDA-approved. Because they are not FDA-approved, they do not have to follow uh, standards in manufacturing, in content, in consistency of batch. They do are not required, as our FDA-approved products are, to be tested in clinical trials to demonstrate efficacy and safety, and they are not required to have a package insert to tell patients the potential risks and benefits that they need to be concerned about. There have been some disturbing findings to suggest that perhaps some women who are using compounded hormones may, for example, have an elevation in the risk of uterine cancer, whether that's because they're getting too much estrogen, not enough progestin, uh, to accommodate that. And so this is a serious uh, side effect. Compounded hormones are not regulated by the FDA, but rather they're regulated by state pharmacy boards. And some states are more fastidious than others at looking for things like adverse event reporting. But inconsistencies in this can be very disturbing, and added reports about that have come out. So what I like to do is to at least try to reason that we have a number of FDA-approved bioidentical hormones that are available. We have oral and transdermal estradiol. That's 17-beta estradiol. This can come as a patch, as a gel, uh, as a vaginal preparation. Similarly, micronized progesterone is also bioidentical, if you will. Uh, there have been recently approved uh, capsules with a combination of a milligram of 17-beta estradiol and 
100 milligrams of micronized progesterone that would meet criteria for bioidentical. Yet all these preparations have been FDA approved, uh, studied for efficacy and safety, include a package insert. And so I really try to reason with women that we have broad uh, doses available and that um, I really try to emphasize that I think that using FDA-approved hormones is the right thing. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about hormone therapy. I'm sure there's a lot of questions that are out there specifically about menopausal hormone therapy. Basically, we've seen a lot of conflicting reports about whether or not it's safe. After the Women's Health Initiative years ago, many thought that it wasn't, but then after a follow-up, it seemed like it was safe for certain individuals. Uh, a study just a few weeks ago in the Lancet once more tied it to increased risk of breast cancer. Uh, there just seems to be a lot of disagreement. So I wanted to see if you could bring some clarification to the murkiness. You know, where where does the truth lie and for whom might menopausal hormone therapy be safe? Again, one of my Southern California analogies now, it's like riding a surfboard and you never know when a really disruptive wave is going to come. So when you're in this business and something like the Lancet report is issued, it can be very disturbing for women and I think for us as clinicians to, because all of us have a goal of uh, do no harm. And the collaborative study, uh, which this Lancet piece was a follow-up of, I think has done an amazing job. I remember the first report was in 1997, so this has been an ongoing thing for several decades. And what they've done is gone back and looked uh, not just kind of combining data from study, but actually getting the individual woman's data from uh, studies and compiling it. But these have primarily been from um, observational studies over time, well done, prospective, uh, longitudinal studies, uh, but nevertheless, observational studies. And so I always worry uh, what specific kind of biases might have led to certain patients being prescribed those hormones that led to women taking them, that led to women sticking with it over time. Uh, but the bottom line of what the Lancet study suggested, the report, was that it looked like there was a clear-cut difference between combined estrogen and progestin therapy, the progestin component being important to protect the lining of the uterus from the estrogen, and estrogen alone in the risk of breast cancer. But it also suggested that there was a real duration effect, that there might be an increase uh, within the first few years and that the, there was a pretty straight line uh, increase over time for women ha who had used hormones for 15 years and beyond. So uh, this is consistent with uh, their previous reports. It's consistent with some of the reports uh, that have been shown from studies like the Nurses' Health Study, another longitudinal perspective study. But it differed a little bit from the findings in the Women's Health Initiative. The Women's Health Initiative, again, was indeed a randomized controlled trial. And with the Women's Health Initiative, we've had the advantage of following women who use combined hormone therapy for a little over five years, and then women without a uterus who used estrogen alone for a little over seven years, to have a full 18 years uh, follow-up now since the initiation of these uh, trials. And there's no question that there was a small increase in breast cancer in women on combined therapy. And the number that we used in our uh, clinical practice guidelines was uh, about uh, three additional cases 
of breast cancer per thousand women in the ages of 50 to 59, so the young women who are likely to come in for hot flash treatment, um, per five years of therapy. So this is less than one per thousand additional cases per year. In the Lancet study, the findings were a similar increase, but the absolute increase was about a power of 10 more. And I Mm. really can't explain that, Erin. And for me, I feel comfortable. And in our guideline group, we felt comfortable informing women and other clinicians of the findings uh, in the WHI. As that trial went on, and the women in the combined therapy during the 18-year follow-up, we're able to look at things like um, breast cancer and breast cancer mortality. And there was absolutely no increase in breast cancer mortality over that total 18 years, so about uh, 13 years following the five years that they stopped taking hormones. Uh, The estrogen alone, um, surprisingly in the WHI, and this differed from uh, studies like the Nurses' Health or this collaborative study did not show an increase in the risk of breast cancer uh, and even reported somewhat a, of a decreased risk. So I don't think any of us would advise women to use um, conjugated equine estrogens to decrease their risk of breast cancer, but I think it was reassuring that we didn't see a large increase, at least in the women who were treated for seven years. Mm-hmm. Um, so kind of thematically, um, some similar findings, but from a numeric standpoint, a very uh, different outcome. So as someone who sees patients, what are some things that you would look for to determine whether or not hormone therapy might be uh, a viable option? Well, what we did in our guidelines, and I really still like this approach very much, is to answer the question that I think the onus is on us to say, will it be safe? So the first point that we look at is what is the age of the woman and what is her time since menopause? Because these were clear-cut breakouts that it took us a while to uh, see reported in the WHI, but but it eventually did so. Is she between the ages of 50 and 59 or is she less than 10 years since the onset of menopause? So that's our first ticky. And we like to focus initiation of hormone therapy in that group. Uh, the second thing is, does she have any contraindications? So contraindications would clearly be things like estrogen uh, sensitive cancers like endometrial cancer or breast cancer. Has she had evidence of cardiovascular disease or events in the way of a heart attack or a stroke or thrombosis in the way of deep vein thrombosis or pulmonary embolus? Uh, and in those women, we feel that we've got other options and don't want to, unless you're like Clint Eastwood, you know, do you feel like (laughs) we don't want to use hormone therapy uh, as a rule? And then the last would be, does she have some serious liver disease because we know that the hormones are metabolized by the liver? So those are pretty much our key contraindications. And if she passes that light, then we like to go on and say, um, what is her risk of heart disease? Because we learned that in the WHI and in some of the other earlier trials when we were looking at secondary prevention, that women at high risk of heart disease seem to have a higher incidence of coronary heart disease events um, when taking at least oral estrogen therapy. So we recommended in our guidelines that people just sit down and look. I think this is a good idea anyhow in your midlife patients and look at something like the um, ACC AHA cardiovascular risk calculator and see what, what the number is. And we said for women at low risk, 
uh, kind of the sky's the limit. She can take whatever kind of hormone therapy she wishes. For women at intermediate risk, these are going to be the patients in, in your practice who have metabolic syndrome, for example, maybe treated hypertension. Uh, that would be a group that hormone therapy would be okay, but we would recommend using a transdermal therapy because we know that that has less hepatic effects. So we're not going to be increasing uh, LDL cholesterol or triglycerides. We're not going to be increasing uh, substrate for thrombosis or um, hypertension. Uh, and so we recommend uh, transdermals for that group. And for women at high risk, uh, who either ha- and it's hard to get a midlife woman to score that high unless she really has a lot of risk mm. factors or previous events, and that would be another group that we would say let's use one of the other categories of therapy. Oh, and the final thing is what is her risk of breast cancer? And we certainly have a number of agents that we can use for breast cancer prevention, and we've learned some pretty interesting lifestyle things that can help with breast cancer prevention as well, like weight loss, exercise, curbing alcohol ingestion. Mm. So we recommended looking at a woman's five-year risk of breast cancer using one of the breast cancer uh, calculators. And again, if she qualified for breast cancer preventive therapy in one of the breast cancer prevention trials, you might want to say to her, gosh, you know, your risk is such that, that do you want to think about breast cancer prevention? And maybe we should steer away from uh, hormone therapy. Or if she came in at very high risk, then that would be a woman that you'd just want to say, you know, I'm not so comfortable giving your baseline risk, whether it's based on family history or lifestyle or uh, genetic indication for using that. And then finally, whether or not she has a uterus, no uterus, mm. no progestins. And we know that um, the progestin component at least the medroxyprogesterone acetate in the clinical trials seem to be associated with more in the way of cardiovascular risk and breast cancer. And for that reason, many of us now are leaning more towards the use of micronized progesterone as a more metabolically friendly, perhaps, uh, kind of progestin to protect the uterus. What counsel would you give to the woman who is experiencing debilitating menopausal symptoms? And she wants to explore treatment, but she obviously wants to pursue safe options. Um, What does she need to consider and what sort of conversation should she be having with her doctor? Well, the first thing I would say is that there is absolutely no reason in uh, the the current day and age for a woman to just have to suffer and to tough this out. Mm -hmm. And I would want uh, folks to feel confident that they can offer patients one of a number of different categories of therapies that will at least improve the symptoms. Again, if we look at the hierarchy, um, estrogen is going to be better than the uh, prescription antidepressants or gabapentin is going to be better than some of the uh, other alternative therapies. But she can still get some improvement. I think she needs to have an honest conversation with her clinician. And um, some folks just, it's such a uh, complex issue in some ways. And we feel like the data keeps changing. I think folks who are taking care of a very broad spectrum of clinical disorders might feel like, I don't feel like I can keep up enough. So then I think um, she could ask her doctor, are you, you know, comfortable helping me out with this? 
we've had a bit of a gap between the ending of the WHI and more recent years when we kind of stopped teaching. And so I, I feel personally like I have worked very hard at my institution to make sure that our medical residents hear something about menopause, our endocrine fellows hear something about menopause. They usually get very interested right in the spring before they go into practice. Mm-hmm. So just ask your clinician and um, endocrine has on our website of find a clinician with areas of interest. So that would be helpful. Uh, And again, I think if clinicians opt out of wanting to participate, which I think is very reasonable, then certainly I think folks would have an idea who in their community might be someone who they felt was evidence-based, who they could uh, refer their patient to. I think they could uh, look at some of the websites that we mentioned online. And so again, if uh, you feel that uh, taking care of women in the situation is something that you don't want to do, um, at least send them to one of the evidence-based websites. Uh, we even made up um, at the Menopause Society an app called Menopro that has a clinician um, portal to it and it has a patient portal. So she can go through and put in her numbers and decide what kind of option looks okay to her because this usually is not Mm -hmm. a one-visit discussion, and it's usually not a quick decision. So uh, I think that's something else you could do. And then I would just want patients, again, as we mentioned earlier, to appreciate this is kind of an ongoing thing. They may not find the right answer for them within the first uh, thing that they try. I think it is reasonable if using hormone therapy to kind of start low and dial the dose up to a point where she feels like her relief is adequate. We Mm -hmm. don't have to try to completely eliminate the hot flashes. Um, And most women will know, certainly I think within the first couple months, whether or not they're going to be getting benefit or not. Uh, So we have changes we can do in the preparation and the dose and the mode of application, whether it's a pill or a patch or a gel. So lots of different things we can do. And then just, um, I think women, I I want them to have peace of mind and not, uh, it's not going to be good to relieve your hot flashes if you can't sleep at night because you're so nervous about Mm -hmm. um, if you're going to hurt yourself with the use of hormone therapy. Well, we covered a lot of ground today and we also spoke about a lot of resources. And so for those of you who are listening, if you want to find those resources, you can go to www.endocrine.org slash podcast. Find this episode. We'll link to everything we talked about today so you can find those there. And I want to say thank you so much to you, Dr. Stunkel, for joining us today. My pleasure, Aaron. Thank you for having me. In answer to my trivia question, the transition period between normal female fertility and menopause is called perimenopause or menopause transition. Perimenopause is characterized by major hormonal changes that may start in regularly menstruating women during their 30s. These hormonal changes can result in higher estradiol levels, decreased progesterone, and altered ovarian pituitary hypothalamic feedback loops. If you are interested in learning more about perimenopause and treatments for this important period of time in a woman's life, listen to Dr. Geraldine Pryor in episode 6. We will have a link to this previous podcast at www.endocrine.org podcast. That's a wrap for this episode. Thanks so much for listening. If you'd like to learn more about treatment for menopausal symptoms, we link to several resources in the description of this episode, which you can find on www.endocrine.org podcast. There you can also listen to our previous episodes, and you can find the Endocrine News Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you're enjoying these episodes, please leave a good review. 
And if you'd like to reach out to us, you can reach us at podcast at endocrine.org. Thanks again for listening. Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www.endocrine.org.